This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. He's been Victoria's leader since 2014. But that's it for Dan Andrews. This week he'll serve his last day as Premier. He's resigned, but why? And how will Victorians judge his time in the top job? We're going to be getting into that in a second. The biggest story of the day, but also this week probably. Also coming up, we're going to be talking about BMI, body mass index. Why are some experts saying that we've got to stop relying so much on it, especially doctors? And later, we're getting into glimmers. You know, the little things in life that make you feel good, like your morning coffee, hearing your favourite song they could actually be having a much bigger impact on your mental and physical health than you think. First, though, today's big story. Pack. In breaking news, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has announced his resignation. On Triple J. Yeah, it's all going down in Victoria. Dan Andrews is going. After almost a decade as Premier of Victoria... He made the announcement earlier. Hack. It's not an easy decision because as much as we've achieved together, there's so much more to do. But when it's time, it's time. Recently, in talking to my kids and Kath, thoughts of what life will be like after this job have started to creep in. And I've always known that the moment that happens, it's time to go and to give this privilege, this amazing responsibility to someone else. He has served his state and indeed his nation to the best of his ability at all times and has made a very positive difference to the lives of Victorians. Premier Daniel Andrews is standing down today because things have fallen apart. We've seen it day after day, one crisis after another. The legacy that Daniel Andrews leaves is a state that is broke. You never want to get to a place where you resent this job, this amazing privilege and important opportunity. That would not be right, and I simply won't allow that to happen. On Triple J. Yeah, some different takes there. What do you reckon? What do you think of all this, especially if you're in Victoria? What do you make of Dan Andrews' time as Premier? You can message in, hit the text line 0439 757 Let's get into it in a bit more detail with Richard Willingham, the ABC's Victorian political reporter. Hey, Richard, thanks for coming on Hack. No worries. Thanks for having me. Was anyone in Victoria expecting this announcement from Dan Andrews today? Were you expecting it? Like, why has he decided to do it now, do you think? Uh, it's, it's, it's the, that's the big question. Nobody expected Daniel Andrews to serve the full term. He said he would, but... No one expected it. I think it's been a matter of um, when, not if. He, he was surprised it happened today. It was always going to surprise whatever day it happened, but um, not a surprise that it's happened. I, I, I mean, I've, I've been covering Daniel Andrews since about 2010, and this, this was always a certainty that he was going to go, just as a matter of when. And um, it was always going to be a case in my mind that he was going to make a decision, wasn't going to tell many people, and then it would just happen, and that's what's happened today. Um, often with these things, you know, you get a, a sense of it, it leaks out, you know, the sort of days letting out the speculation. There was none of that. I got a word, <laughs> you know, confirmed it 20 minutes before that it happened, that it was happening. So um, really uh, very much his style, very much Dan's way, if you like. He controls everything um, and 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 made sure and that his, his resignation is exactly the same. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. I mean, do you think it's fair to say, Richard, that he is one of the more polarising leaders in Australia? Like, it just seems like, even looking at the comments on Hack's Instagram, divided. People love him or yeah, they hate him. It, it's, it's definitely love or loathe. Um, ultimate test, um, he's been to three elections as leader and he's won all three of them. 
and the last two were thumping wins. Um, so the people that hate Dan Andrews, they will tell you they hate Dan Andrews. People that like him or, or support him, they don't generally tell you. They just, you know, it's not an issue for them. But the haters really hate, if you like. Yeah. Um, and it's vitriolic. A lot of the hate is vitriolic. Um, I think that was as a result of COVID and exacerbated by his political style. Like Daniel Andrews' style is crash through. He knows what he wants. He's going to get it at whatever cost, um, which a lot of people like because they're sick of politicians sort of, you know, sitting on the fence. I think with Daniel Andrews, you, you, you saw what you, like what, what you heard and use what you got a lot of the time. Um, there's certainly Daniel Andrews pushed the, the boundaries and some of the integrity issues, <laughs> it's fair to say, but like, as I said, the the ultimate test was he won three elections and two of them, like, by massive margins, like massive margins. Um, and in a period where political leadership, you know, political leadership's been so uh, fraught and people get knifed all the time, he's been Labor leader since 2010. Like, it's, it's a, in Victoria, it's a very, very long time. Yeah, it is, especially when you compare it to some other states and the kind of r- rotation that we <laughs> Re- see Revolving there. door of leadership, <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's not the same everywhere. So many messages coming through. Someone says, thank God he's gone. Took years off my life when my hometown Mildura didn't have a single COVID case and he locked us down for ages. Someone else, love him or loathe him, Dan Andrews will be forever remembered as the progressive and unrivaled Premier we needed. That one was from Tyler. And some Someone else said, I called this today. I was talking about Dan Andrews resigning during a uni presentation and it <laughs> happened. That was from Sean. Richard, for people outside of Victoria, there's a lot of other stuff going on too, though. Like it's not only the COVID uh, lockdowns, although that's kind of a big focus of his uh, tenure as Premier, but there's been some other scandals, like obviously cancelling the Commonwealth Games, finances, debt in Victoria. There's been yeah. reporting on inquiries by Victoria's Anti-Corruption Commission. What some of the other things? I think it's, so it's, it's very fascinating about it. It's a bit like love and loathe. There's so many positives and so many negatives. Um, so the Victorian, one thing to remember for those outside of Victoria is that the Victorian um, Anti-Corruption Commission, IBAC, as opposed to ICAC, the definition of um, and the threshold for corru- what's considered corrupt conduct is much, much higher than, say, New South Wales. So it's hard to compare ICAC with IBAC because, and so I, I back the Victorian version, has never found anyone, you know, guilty of corruption in, in, in his government or Daniel Andrews, but they've often made complaints about what they call grey corruption, sort of this soft corruption where, you know, the government is using, you know, their power to help their, their labour mates, but doing it sort of not le- legally, so they're not breaking the laws, but it's sort of unethical behaviour. There's been several reports around that, never naming Daniel Andrews explicitly, but it's under his watch and under his government, under his culture of government. Um, there is massive debt. And then part of that, before COVID struck, the, the, the Andrews government was borrowing billions and billions of dollars to build heaps of big projects, removing level crossings, building twin train tunnels under the CBD, a big road project in Melbourne's west to duplicate, um, to give an alternative route um, out of the city. And then COVID struck and because Victoria, as we know, was the most locked down place and more affected by COVID than any other city, they spent and borrowed billions more to keep the economy going, to help people out, help businesses out, and and keeping the health system um, afloat. So that added to debt. So our debt's looking at like $171 billion in three years' time. Now, those numbers are eye-watering for a state. 
part of the Andrews government's attitude was, I think, you've got to, you know, spend money to, to make money and build things. People want to see things. They want to see their state governments doing things. They want to see services, you know, being built. They want to see roads and tunnels and public transport. And so they made the calculation that a lot of people, I think, you know, young people, you're told if you're ever going to buy a house, you're going to go into debt for 30 years. And I think the attitude, their attitude was you can do the same for government because it's, they compared it a lot to, to buying a home. You, you, it's, it's good debt, if you like. A lot of it's now bad debt because of interest rates um, and, and COVID borrowings. But it, it's this really, it was a calculation they made. And I think a lot of it was too that they didn't think that voters are that worried about debt. And I think the last election showed that. Yeah. I mean, what happens now, Richard, Wednesday being his last day as Premier, who's going to be the next Premier, do we know? Well, well all, all the um, the smart money's on Jacinta Allen, who's current deputy um, and a, a, a member for Bendigo East. She was first elected when she was 25, actually, in the 1999 um, upset um, win for Labor over Jeff Kennett. Uh, she's the, the smart money. She's from the socialist left, which is the dominant faction in Victoria, which is Daniel Andrews' faction. Um, it, there hasn't been any sort of serious other names put forward. Um, the right might try and put somebody up as deputy and there'll be a bit of jostling. I think I think you'd imagine that Jacinta Allen probably gets it. She's not a factional player traditionally, which may be a, an issue for her, but I, I, I think at this stage, what is the time? It's, you know, <laughs> 20 to 20 to 6, um, she's the front runner, but you know, the phones are running hot amongst Labor MPs and unions about who, who can fill those spots and um, that'll play out over the coming days. I can imagine there's a whole lot more going to be happening over the next few days. I reckon we'll be talking about it again. ABC political reporter Richard Willingham, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. No worries, safe. And so many more messages coming through on Instagram. Someone says, about time, thanks for the debt, Dan. David says, Victoria, finally, you're free. But then someone else says, what a champ, he deserves the rest. I'm so grateful for his leadership. Hack. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should just ignore this number because it's not an indicator of your overall health. On Triple J. Just a heads up, we're talking now about weight and eating disorders. So if you might find this triggering, tune out for the next few minutes. Have you ever gone to the doctor for something unrelated only to have them bring up your weight? If you've got a bigger body, probably something you've experienced. The ABC's specialist reporting team's been looking into this and they've got hundreds of people telling them that they've been discriminated against or even denied healthcare because of their weight. And a lot of the complaints are talking about BMI and references to body mass index, which is a score based on your weight and height. So let's pose this question. Are we relying on BMI too much as a measure of health? Shalala Madora explains. Like most young girls, um, I hit puberty and gained some weight. Annie Crow's story starts when she was just 12 years old. So we sought medical help and the first recommendation we had was to go on a diet that restricted mostly carbohydrates. And this was the beginning of two decades worth of an eating disorder and a lot of um, pain and suffering on my behalf. Annie describes herself as living in a larger body. Most of that is because my metabolism is completely destroyed from the years of very unhelpful diets I've been put on by mostly healthcare professionals. She found that time and time again, her weight would be the only thing that health practitioners saw. Assumptions would quickly be made about my health, but just based on my BMI or how I looked. And questions were rarely asked on what my uh, exercise or eating was actually like. 
those practitioners rarely took the time to understand Annie or her health. Often I would be recommended things like diet pills and other very extreme diets. She told us she's experienced subtle weight discrimination as well as overt discrimination. I was in a car accident and I had to get multiple surgeries from that and one of them for my spine was denied because the hospital had a BMI limit. All the while, Annie's underlying conditions were going undiagnosed. Some of the challenges that my community face around weight and health um, are specifically around um, the connection between hunger signals and satiation, so it's called interoception, which is being able to tell when you're full and when you're hungry. At 28, Annie was diagnosed with autism and ADHD. Another thing that's common for ADHDers is attention and distraction. So um, we can get very focused on things and forget to eat. And then that can result in being very hungry and eating too much. And it's a bit of a vicious cycle. Annie is a disability rights lawyer and founder of not-for-profit organisation Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia. So you think she'd be sorted for healthcare, right? wrong. I still, to this day, struggle to find healthcare professionals that will give me non-discriminatory, safe healthcare. Annie was one of hundreds of people who shared their story with the ABC's specialist reporting team. So more than 700 people got in touch with the ABC for our investigation into weight in the health sector. As ABC reporter Alison Branley explains, many of those people said their BMI, or body mass index, was used to deny them crucial care. What people are saying is it's really being used as just an arbitrary measure uh, without anyone looking at things like whether they smoke or not, whether they've already lost a lot of weight, which already reduces their risk, whether their blood sugar's in a healthy state, whether they exercise, not looking at their overall picture of health. The American Medical Association updated its health guidelines earlier this year, warning doctors not to use BMI as the only indicator of health. The Royal Australian College of GPs has made a similar move. So in general, BMI has been used as a measure of um, abnormal excessive body fat. But the reality is there's lots of things that make up a, a person's weight, not just uh, their fat tissue, but they can be extremely well muscled or very heavy uh, bones. Dr Terry Lynn South is a GP and dietitian and is part of the college. She says Australian doctors in general need to do better to educate themselves on the changing scientific thinking around obesity. With the number of um, health concerns that the primary care, primary care practitioner needs to be abreast of, it's very hard to have that deeper knowledge about um, particular areas. Um, I do think that with some of the newer management options coming into Australia, um, GPs in general need to step up. It is within our rights as patients to protect ourselves, both physically and mentally, from any kind of discrimination or abuse at the hands of the health system. Annie has been advocating in this space for years, and she says you don't have to put up with discrimination from health professionals. But this is the kind of thing that most people don't even know they're allowed to say to their doctors. They're allowed to set those boundaries when they walk in at the door and say, I'm not comfortable discussing my weight, or I don't want to be weighed, or like, obviously there are exceptions to this when they do need your weight for things like anesthesia, but there are safer ways to have those conversations. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. Also, remember, if this has raised any issues for you, there's always someone to speak with at the Butterfly Foundation on 1800 ED Hope. 
That's 1800 334 On the text line, Darren says, BMI is horrid. I've missed out on the ADF because of it. I'm an electrician and have worked as a full-time firefighter. Another person says, BMI is BS. I'd have to drop 20 kilos to meet mine. Well, let's find out more about it. Nick Fuller is from the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. It looks into obesity and he's with us now. G'day, Nick. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks very much for having me on, Dave. A lot of people listening would know exactly what BMI is, but for those who don't, what exactly is it? How is it calculated? Basically, to calculate your BMI, um, you're dividing your weight by your height squared. And how long have we been using it as a score of health? Yeah, well, believe it or not, this measurement has actually been around for more than 200 years. It was developed by Belgium statistician, and that was started as a way to describe the average white man in the 1800s. What then happened was you fast forward a decade, a few decades actually, uh, in the United States, and life insurance companies started using it to calculate insurance premiums based on a predicted risk of dying. Then fast forward again, we, we had a or a very clever scientist uh, by the name of Ansel Keys basically did a lot of research uh, using this tool, but it was limited in the fact that it was done in healthy men, about 7,000 of them. And this is how we've come to the measurement known as body mass index or BMI today. And in terms of how we classify people when we're talking about BMI, there's sort of four different cutoff points. Uh, you've got your underweight, which is a BMI of less than 18.5. Uh, normal, which is a BMI between 18.5 and 24.9. And then you have overweight, which is 25 to 29.9. And then obesity, which is a BMI of 30 or above. Now, when we're talking about BMI, particularly when we, we reference Australia, about 70% of the population using this, this crude calculation actually fall into the overweight or obesity range. So it's quite scary. Is it accurate though? Well, that's the thing. It's not. Look, um, in short, no. But it is a tool that you can use to give you a starting point for an indication of your health. But it's definitely not something you should be relying on alone. There's several reasons why it's not taking into consideration the most important thing, that's body fat percentage. We can't distinguish between fat and muscle using BMI. Because remember, we're only looking at weight and height. So you can have people that fall in the overweight or obesity range that are healthy. Athletes are a very good example. They carry a lot of muscle mass and, and consequently, many of them do fall in that overweight range when you use BMI. But the most important thing is that it's missing out or not measuring our body fat distribution. And a lot of science and research studies have shown that people with the same BMI can actually vary significantly in terms of disease risk profiles and that's primarily driven by where that fat is distributed in the bodies not all fat is equal a very good example is sumo wrestlers believe it or not sumo wrestlers when we measure them from a metabolic point of view most of them are actually healthy yes they appear visually as, as overweight or having obesity but a lot of that fat is subcutaneous fat it lies just beneath the skin. They're actually metabolically healthy. They're doing a lot of physical activity. And consequently, the dangerous fat or the visceral fat is quite low. And then the last thing I guess we need to highlight, it's not, it's not accounting for demographic differences. We all differ. Gender is one example where females have less muscle and more fat than males. But we also know that there's significant differences in body weight and body composition and also disease risk based on ethnicity. 
So people of Asian ethnicity um, actually are at higher risk at a lower BMI, where people of Polynesian ethnicity can actually be healthier at higher BMI. So the BMI cutoff point that we use is not applicable to all population groups. So if we're not using BMI, though, what should we be using? Is there an alternative that might be a bit more reflective of someone's overall health? Yes, I guess, again, you know, it's it's a good starting point. Unfortunately, it's, it's what's relied on solely in most instances in the gen- general practice or primary healthcare setting, and it, it can be quite stigmatising um, when it's brought up in conversation with a patient. So we need to focus on other measures that are particularly telling us what type of fat we're carrying in the body and how it's distributed. Now, waist circumference is a very good tool to use. Everyone can do that. But also, we need to look at our metabolic profile. And what I mean by that is going to your GP and and getting a health check, particularly if you haven't had a health check for a long period of time. Now, they'll measure your blood pressure, but they'll also send you away for some blood tests. Now, with those blood tests, they'll measure your heart disease risk, your diabetes risk, so you'll have your cholesterol tested, your triglycerides, which is basically measuring the type of fat found in your blood, but they'll also have a look at blood sugar levels, inflammation markers. That is going to give you a much more holistic picture of your health as opposed to just relying on a single measure like BMI. The focus needs to be on health, not weight. If you can lose just a couple of kilos of weight, often that will significantly reduce your risk of heart disease and diabetes. You don't necessarily need to be working towards that healthy BMI range because it is nonsense. So for many people, it might be just a couple of kilos, two to three kilos, which will see them significantly improve their health. And for others, it might be five or 10 kilos, but it mightn't be the 30 or 40 or 50 kilos that the BMI tools telling you you need to work towards or the dieting industry is telling you you should be adhering to. Good advice. Uh, Definitely something that's hitting with listeners. Nick Fuller from the University of Sydney. Appreciate your take on all of that. Thanks very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Hack. It's a moment of profound connection to yourself and the world that you inhabit. On Triple J. Time to talk about some nicer things now. Do you know what glimmers are? They're the little things in life that brighten your day. Maybe the feeling of sunshine on your skin or smelling your coffee brewing in the morning. It could be staring up at the stars on a nice peaceful night. What are your glimmers? Because they could be doing quite a bit to improve your mental and physical health, more than you think. Angel Parsons explains. So the idea of the next few minutes is to do the opposite of trigger you, to make you feel calm, safe and happy. Because that's what a glimmer does. Let's go on a glimmer hunt. Welcome to part two of me reading your glimmers from the greatest comment section ever. Got some beautiful sunflowers back there. The name was created by an American clinician back in 2018, but it's now also made its way to TikTok. Basically, a glimmer is a small moment of peace or joy that lets us know we're safe, happy, and that things are okay. It's like the opposite of a trigger, which sparks negative emotions. I asked my workmates to think about what theirs might be. Hi, Angel. It's April. You asked me to record my glimmers, so here we go. (laughs) I think it's standing in the middle of the bush and just taking a deep breath and smelling the eucalyptus and the leaves and trees, especially after it's rained. 
I love lavender. So I love a good lavender incense or lavender candle, lighting one of those up. One glimmer that I have is when I rock up to the gym and there's no one there. Best feeling in the world. As you know, I'm obsessed with Criminal Minds. You know, my glimmer is hearing the intro song for Criminal Minds. And also the intro song for Triple J Hack. Rugged up up top, <laughs> tiny little booty shorts. Whenever my dog kind of gets a little bit excited when I get home or when I stop working and starts doing zoomies around the house, spinning and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I can't help but feel a little bit excited with her. I had a bit of a think about it and I thought about our cheese drawer at work. So we've started this thing, um, me and my colleagues, that we have this whole drawer filled with all different types of cheese wrapped up because we just love cheese. And anytime we're sitting at our desk not feeling so good, we just go, mm, tempura cheese. And honestly, it just makes my day every day. And today I came in early this morning and the cheese drawer was filled and it's like Santa coming. And I was like, today is going to be a good day. I've seen echidnas out when I go mountain biking. When I see them, it's literally like throw the bike down, have to take a video. Like that just makes my ride if I see an echidna. So yeah, just those little things out in nature is really cool. I love the sound of kookaburras, particularly in the morning. Um, kookaburras are really special. They're my favourite animal. So I love a good kookaburra laugh. When my grandmother passed away, it was after her funeral and I was sitting outside of her house, just, you know, crying as you do. And this kookaburra came and sat right in front of me and stared at me for about 10 minutes and didn't move and just stared at me. And it made me feel like maybe, you know, it was my grandma. For me, it's seeing the afternoon sun on hardwood floors or when a song by my favourite artist comes on at the shops or at a cafe. And whether you want to actually give these small moments a name or not, the point is that actively noticing and savouring the small moments in life can help us regulate our nervous system and it can help us challenge the inbuilt bias our minds have towards negativity and threats. As my workmate Abby put it, it's definitely better to have a glimmer than a trigger. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that little update. So good to hear what everyone's glimmers are. Although I'm not sure about someone saying the hack theme is a glimmer for them. It's more of a trigger for me, I must say. Not going to lie. Hear that? Stress out a bit? <laughs> Let's get into it a bit more now. Tamara Cavanagh is a clinical psychologist, the former president of the Australian Psychological Society, and she's with us now. G'day, Tamara. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Have you had a little bit of a glimmer today? I have. So there happens to be a river near my office and just looking at it and seeing the sunlight on it is a little bit of a glimmer. Oh, that's so nice. That's that's one of the best ones we've heard. Imagine just staring out of your office window and seeing that. What kind of impact are these little moments having on our overall well-being? Because tomorrow we probably don't think too much about it at the time, but is it kind of important in terms of our overall health? It's really important. So it signals to the body that you're safe, um, that all is well, and it's the exact opposite of what we're usually doing when we get triggered by anxiety. So it's something that you want to build into your life and just take a little bit more time to notice them. How can we focus more on glimmers, do you think? 
a conscious attention towards it. So it's about noticing the little small things, the things that make you feel good. And, you know, I think one person mentioned cheese on there. So just that little moment where you're eating something beautiful or, you know, and just joining them together because we don't pay that much attention to these things. I mean, there's definitely a lot of talk about it on social media, on TikTok, racking up millions of views. Why do you think it is that people are really connecting with this idea at the moment? I think one part is that it's something that you can do for your well-being that's relatively easy to do and doesn't take too much time. The second part is I think we're all looking for something that makes us feel good and to do a little bit more of it because the world gets stressful, life gets hard, and it's just that opportunity to invest a little bit in well-being. Hey, it's definitely worth doing and it's good to talk about as well, just those little moments in life that not many of us think about. Clinical psychologist Tamara Cavanagh, thank you very much for coming on Hack. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And on the text line, we're still hearing so many more of your glimmers. Someone says, mine is awakening early in the morning, just before sunrise, and then sitting with a cup of coffee and watching the day come alive. Yeah, I love to do that as well. Someone else says, I'm driving past fields of canola. The yellow is so beautiful. It's the happiest colour ever. Big fan of the canola fields, especially central west New South Wales, those kinds of areas. See some of those paddocks, they're spectacular. Bree from New South Wales says, could be an upcoming holiday or my lunchtime walk in the sun. It's a great conversation topic with workmates to focus on things outside of work. And Nate from Caloundra says, a glimmer should be kept to yourself. Nobody can or should be able to take away your happiness or your happy place. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.